The Silwa, Part 2. On the car ride from the AA meeting to the morgue, it hit me. This was all real. There is someone dead, not because of me, but the other one. I had to own that. My head swam with the knowledge and the leftover booze and the terror. There really was something out there in the dumps on the edge of town that was eating people. Mike isn't answering. Damn it! Pete Ingram snapped his outdated flip phone closed. He had been dialing the janitor who worked in the hospital morgue continually since I recounted my story events of days earlier in the dumps when I had witnessed a kid's corpse Reanimate, I suppose is the term. And saw something inside the corpse, something filthy, sharply aware, and hungry, staring back. You said the kid's body was shaking when you heard the Silwa's voice, and ran. What else? Can you think of anything? This was Terry Bedrock Bedrosian. He rarely spoke, especially to me. It wasn't shaking, it was more like vibrations, I said. You know what it was like? Have you seen footage of a rat's body decomposing in time-lapse? Like twitching and sinking into the earth, that's what it looked like. What else, Darius, he said. He was on a knife edge, holding back rage with white-knuckled restraint. You see, instead of telling the group what had happened at the dumps two days ago, I had gotten off of work picked up some old crow and a case of wine on the way home and attempted to drink it out of my mind. I spent two and a half days blackly drunk and finally talked myself into coming to the group. And that's when they told me the true nature of this place and the first responders AA group. Bedrock was sitting in the front passenger seat wanting to hammer me as flat and unconscious as I had been throughout the last weekend. See, he hated me for not telling the group about the thing I had encountered that they referred to as a Silwa or a Sterquilinus. If I had, maybe things would be different. By now, the corpse would be at the morgue and the enemy will be alone with the body and will have been that way for days. Bedrock was furious with me, but equally angry with himself for not explaining to me earlier what the true nature of this group really was. The AA First Responders Group, the Blue Crew as they called themselves, was a bunch of drunks and addicts, mostly blue collar guys who worked in emergency medicine and first aid care and first response. In one way or another, people who brushed up against the darker elements of life because of their professions and their recreational proclivities towards human wreckage. Firemen, police, paramedics, construction workers, plumbers, 
people who dealt with elements of nature, like fire and water and earth moving, pain and injuries and disease and rage and agony. In other words, people who deal in disaster, human disasters and natural disasters, and as I was finding out that evening, supernatural disasters. We had all succumbed to addiction through the course of our work, and the group was a way to keep us sober, together, and possibly fighting against what lived and lurked in Rio County. It's hard to push away the glass when you fight daily against infernos and infirmities. It becomes nearly impossible when you come face to face with the monsters of the other side, orchestrating it all, trying to tear down the walls of reality just for the hell of it. Just for the hell indeed. And the group was a kind of battlement or lighthouse in the storm, standing against the chaos eaters, or at least lighting the way for the lost. I reviewed what had happened with them again. Like I said, the seagulls went crazy. It got dark with them swarming in the air above me in the body. I stumbled back and got caught in a pile of clothes. It was a baby's powder blue onesie wrapped around my boot, and I almost fell onto a broken-up toilet. Jesus. I imagine my hands being sliced to ribbons on the dirty toilet, mucked in dirt and shit, and sharp, jagged porcelain. And then a sound like Siwa or Steel Qua began whispering from the corpse and on the wind and in the sound of the swooping seagulls like a wave about to break over everything. It built and built. It was all I could hear. And then I ran. I held up my palms to them in summation. That's it. Did it reach for you? Did it touch you? The steer quilt, did it touch you? I don't know. I stumbled off at a full clip. The footing in the dumps, like running and trying to run in a dream. You keep sinking and tripping I thought it had me for an instant, but I kept going. I didn't look again until I was back at the ambulance, and at that distance, it all looked normal again. I can't remember anything else, I'm sorry. Did it reach for you, the stir quilt? Did you touch it, Pete asked. I don't know, I stumbled off at a full clip. The footing in the dumps. Running is like trying to run in a dream. You keep sinking and tripping. I thought it had me for an instant, but kept going. I didn't look back again until I was at the ambulance, and at that distance it looked normal again. All right, shut up and think. You have to remember everything, everything that happened. Images, smells, thoughts you had, everything, Bedrock barked. As we drove, I let it wash over me again. I remembered the stories they had recounted to me in the meeting. The ancientness of this place on the shores of the Pacific its splayed fingers of mountain ranges and forests, where the mouths of the rivers are gagged by the ocean currents and churn brackish and fouled by waste, where the land meets the sea and the living meet the dead and stir. They said the Miwoks who settled the area knew their lot here and rejoiced that they were allowed to live on the crusts and fishes of the land but all too well knew to take care of the living animals here because they were the guardians against the dead, or rather the undead, 
They were the custodians of the lands here long, long before the Russian trappers arrived. The Spanish and the Scot-Irish took it or bargained it away from them. Maybe if it had been a peaceful exchange of power, the Indians would have passed along the secrets hidden here. But how do you tell a businessman that he must speak to the undead? That supernatural was just that, natural in its supreme state. That to be a bastion of the supernatural requires vision and responsibility to the unseen worlds, and at times, sacrifice. In the end, the Miwoks withheld the information out of bitter spite and revenge, so that as they winked out of existence, they would take down with them the ignorant, hungry people from the East. And now, all that stood to defend us against the monsters who prey on our souls was this band of ex-drunks and junkies. Grim. How fucking hopeless. First, let me get this straight. This place, Rio County, and Rio Vista is a gateway into a dark universe. There are demons who mark the entries into the other worlds, or borderlands as you call them, or fairy circles. The over and underworlds, like snakes guarding their pits. They're, they're the what? The sparkling dead, the Miwok said. They're the malevolent beings that bring about chaos and death for us people, for humanity. Is that about it? The twinkling dead. We used to call them twinks or twinkles, but you can't use that term anymore, said Bedrock. It was a good enough name for them as I thought about what they normally appear like when we encounter them. And we all have, according to the guys in the group. They're the sparkling things that materialize in your nightmares as you frantically swim claw for consciousness. You've seen that or felt something like that, I'm sure. They're the ones who grasp onto your ankle just before your head breaches the surface of waking. It got me! I didn't make it! I'm dying! That sort of feeling. And gasping for breath and groggily situating yourself in wakefulness, you make the most untrue assumption you can to calm yourself. That they were in your head. If you believe that you imagine that creature into being, you'd be wrong. But if you were to say that thing that almost pulled me back down into darkness was just in my head, well then you'd be right, it was in your head, prying around, eating and possessing what it wanted just for a second. They eat you. They eat your fears. They eat your love, your happiness. They eat your memories. And if you stay down there too long, Dare, they eat your soul and your life until you're hollowed out and they take over your body entirely. You're just a passenger along for the ride with whatever evils they want to commit, like boosting a car and going on a crime spree inside it, Pete said. He continued, What you saw in the dumps was most likely the Silwa exiting or entering that kid's body. They can possess you and come up to the surface when we're weak or intoxicated and just fuck shit up. All the while, they're eating us from the inside out. That's all they want to do. Ruin the tenuous order we've made in the world, all the time feeding on us. You're sure it didn't enter you, infect you? No, how would I? Bedrock said, What do you smell? 
Nothing. Nothing? You have to smell something. What, carb, leather, B.O., something? He looked at me like I was a kindergartner. I smell car leather, yeah. I also smell my Old Spice and your cigarettes. Maybe ham? Did you eat ham? Pete held up an Arby's wrapper. Hot ham and cheese? Yeah. Well, that's basically it, Bedrock asked. You smell shit. I didn't. Any shit, dog shit, horse shit? No. I honestly didn't. Did I step in it or one of you guys? I don't smell it. Remember I said the Sturquil's a piece of shit? He's really a piece of shit. It's made of feces and urine and refuse. And it gets larger the more feces and refuse is produced in an area and left unchecked. Apparently, one of the first signs that you've been infected by one is that you can only smell shit for the first couple days. People think they've stepped in it or that they're having a stroke or something. You're lucky you weren't intoxicated when you ran into it. Would have been much easier for it to slip in past your body's defenses. Pete picked up his phone and began dialing the M.E. again. Sorry, what are we talking about? I can't believe all this is happening. This is some sort of story to stop me from drinking, isn't it? Bedrock turned to me, staring me deep in the eyes, holding a thought there. He finally swallowed and said, Darius, I've been on two calls where I saw you get something from the patient that was like mind reading. I've told the guys here that you could do it, yes or no. I started to deny it, but I realized what he meant and was stricken silent. He had seen me peek. He nodded, is what I thought. That's why we picked you to be here in the first place. You want to see if this is real? Want to see when I first saw a glimpse of this world? He was holding out his hand to shake. I'm going to tell you a story. Take my hand. You tell me if I'm making it up. I was hesitant only for a second. I thought the moment I grabbed his hand, he would pulverize the bones in mine. He could do it. He was that kind of strong. Pretend I'm your patient. I'm going to tell you what happened to me once back in the army. His calloused, worn grip was like grasping leather gloves worn from years of roughneck work. On the scale of primates, I would have placed bedrock closer to gorilla than homo sapien. And then the hands warmed and the pulses beat down his arm and through the tips of his fingers. I felt his body flow in a circuit of supplying and hauling fuel and blood and waste, like a city, like a world inside each one of us. His mind opened to me, sending and receiving messages, ticker tape directives, telegraphic neurotransmitters flickering at the central cerebral motherboard. He began to speak, and I began to peek. And I saw Song Gong, July 1967. It has thankfully stopped raining this morning, but it's still overcast, and silver gray clouds billow fast overhead. There is actually a chill in the heavy wind, which carries with it the smell of wet earth, burning wood, 
and gasoline. Terry Bedrock Bedrosian is 20 years old and he is clearing the hamlet along with his platoon. It's a quick pan and scan of the village. There had been activity in it two days prior according to an intruder squad report. They're here to count the houses, meet the people, size them up, and see what they can see. Bedrock's enjoying the first cool breeze he has felt in a week. He wants to get back home to a barbecue. His barrack mates had actually procured a couple of steaks from a recently living cow. And he wants to see a prostitute that had begun to look for him on base. She was small and thin, and he held her straight up against the wall when he screwed her. The noises she made, the wide eyes and open mouth, the wrists draped over his shoulders. He was thinking of her when he opens the door to the hut in the back of the hamlet on the edge of the woods. He breaches the moldering door with the barrel of his car, and he sees them standing about ten yards from him inside the hut, a man and woman. They stare at him deadpan. Their eyes are emotionless. Their mouths are set. Their hatred is flat and devastating. He flashes awake, and his heart leaps and cowers behind his lungs, which are gasping for voice. Zhuang! Zhuang! He shouts, down, down! And his partner Danny, who had been clearing hamlets with Terry, runs up next to him, port arms. What, what, what? He's blurting as he flips the safety. Danny is already cursing himself for being slower and not having the safety off already. How careless is he? He is just in time to see the Vietnamese man rush to the door and slam it shut in Bedrock's face. As he does, the villager does something with his breath that sounds like a cat's hiss. Then he slams the door in both of their faces and the hut shakes, debris falling from the roof thatching. The two look at each other and share a queer tittering laugh. Kick it, Danny says. Bedrock hesitates just for an instant because of what he saw the second before the door was slammed. Then he hauls boot and kicks the door not just open but off its slipshod frame and the two see the couple inside. They are long dead, lying on top of one another. Their bodies are greening and bloated. Flies swarm and an ocean of maggots are boiling out of a quarter-sized hole in the long dead man's head. As the light hits the bodies, the maggots pull deeper into the gunshot, hiding from the brightness. And the smell of dead farts and decaying meat mingles with fallen rain, grass smoke, as the houses of the village were being lit on fire. When the man moved to the door not just two seconds before, it had been lightning quick, almost floating, like lights through a window. You see, what had moved to the door was not any more human than the heaps of meat in front of them now. Maybe they had been, but they had moved on. 
But no, they were still here in some way. They were both decaying and stranded. They had been killed with the rest of the butchering several days before, but they still remained waiting for someone to find them. Dan Bedrock begins using Albright's first name, which hardly ever occurs in the service. No, let's go, Albright says, shutting the case closed. Light this hot and turn the fuck around. Yep, Bedrock agrees, and they light a flare and trace the eave of the roof around two sides of the hamlet. Bedrock sees a window, nothing more than a hole in the bamboo wall, and shudders. Don't look it. Don't look in it, he thinks. What will they be if I look in? Whose flesh spreads like a cold rash across his neck and back. Don't look. Don't look. What will they be, alive or dead? What will they be if I look inside? But he does in the end. He walks by the window and squaring his shoulders peers inside. The bodies are piled in a heap. He looks behind at Albright, who was watching him in terrified curiosity. Are they still dead? Yeah, dead still. Let's fucking go, man. Yep. Hardly a word at all, but a grunt. They back away from the hut on each other's sixes and slowly rotating around. Each time one looks at the hut, it gives them a view of that window. Bedrock can't see them anymore as smoke begins to wisp and finally billows with orange fangs inside. He can't see them, but he can feel them watching him back away. He can feel their headshot eyes marking him. He will remember the outside of that hut for the rest of his life and the speed of the ghost and the sound of a hiss and the shaking of the hut. Danny and he spoke about it twice. Once after they got a good and drunk upon returning to the barracks, they were buzzing darkly and without so much as saying the affirmative, they put an arm around each other and solemnly sipped their beers. I wish I had something stronger, Danny said. Me too. I can ask if she knows a guy, Bedrock said, referring to his new concubine. Ah, fuck it, sure, says Danny. But instead, Bedrock goes and finds the girl, fucks and drinks himself unconscious. And when he gets back, Danny says he found something anyway. The two remained friends through the war and meet up once again, recounting what they saw that day. They remain friends, even though Danny has been dead of an overdose since 1983. River Road, present day. Mike! Pete was shouting into the phone, startling me out of the past. Bedrock jerked back, and his eyes were wide and starry, like he had been cold-cocked in the temple. The peak had taken a toll on him. Pete continued, What? He was squinting into the phone, trying to hear Mike the janitor on the other end. No, don't go into the morgue. You gotta speak up, I can't... Which locker room? At the morgue? His voice twisted up with incredulity. Ah, oh, shit. He covered the phone lightly to speak to us. 
The fucking thing's down in the morgue and Mike's trapped in one of the lockers. Hank's, uh, he shook his head twice. And that's how I found out I had gotten the M.E. killed. Whatever that thing was I had seen, it had gotten to the morgue in that boy and killed Hank, the medical examiner. And it was all because of me. My bad. It wasn't from a drunk driving wreck or some inebriated stunt that seems like a great idea and to tragedy befalls. It wasn't because of what I did, but what I didn't do. God help me, I had crawled away gutlessly. I was plummeting into self-destruction now and would have continued except Darius. Bedrock said. He shook me by the shoulders. Save that self-pity shit. There's a guy trapped down there and we gotta help. It's not your emergency, it's his. Get your head in the fucking game. We descended into the lower floors of the hospital like the bowels of a dungeon. We walked at a hurried pace, getting to Mike ASAP, but not wanting to attract unneeded attention. At this hour, there was only the barest of skeleton crews working. And that was only at the ER, the ICU, and post-op wards. But if they saw three guys running through the halls, even on the CSTV, things would go south fast. Faint moans from the floors above echoed down to us. The sounds of the living crying out, I'm alive and in pain. The lower we went, the screams subtracted. And so did the feeling that anything in these depths was human. The fluorescent lights were scattered down long hallways. As we neared them, they buzzed like fat flies feasting on a corpse. I felt like creatures were perched in the corners of the hallway and looking out from the darkened rooms, watching us through the metal and glass reinforced windows. Something insane and hungry. Pete touched my chest in the darkness. Stop. There's Mike's janitor office. He's down at the end of the hall, right? Yes, but we need the bleach. What for? I asked, still whispering and listening for the sounds from the morgue at the end of the hallway. It's a shit monster, right? To it, bleach is like holy water to a vampire. How do you know all this? I felt he must have fought it off before. I don't, but I mean, doesn't that seem right? My shoulders sank. Bedrock actually laughed. All right, what a fucking plan. Come on, let's go to hell together. And with that, we crept down the hall towards whatever beast and carnage awaited. At the doors of the morgue, Pete held up his fingers in the air like he was about to conduct a symphony and he was going to call the downbeat. And there, on the other side of the door, were wet, smacking sounds and something cringingly wheezing. Something was on the other side and it was eating. And we circled the doors, pointing to each other. Pete would kick the door and Bedrock and myself would charge in with the bleach. It was the last thing on God's green earth I wanted to do, but this whole mess. Well, I was through blaming myself. 
It's time to make amends, and I meant to do that with a bottle of disinfected and huge balls. Suddenly, the mouth-smacking sounds on the other side of the door ceased. Dead silence. Ah, fuck, Bedrock said, just as footsteps ran. No galloped up to the morgue doors. Pete kicked out hard against the swinging door and made solid contact with the creature on the other side. Its scream squealed, and something fell onto the tiled floor. We all kicked at the doors now, and screaming like harpies, we charged in. The rest is chaos. Hank Kitchens' remains are piled up on the floor by the drain. Behind them is something made of slathering black mucus, smoldering exhaust fumes, and the rotted remains of a thousand dead animals. I could see the hide of a skunk across its chest and the innards and skin of a deer, most likely roadkill, which served as a left shoulder and arm. A bloody stench, maddening images and gore. And all inside the thing, billions of insects walked and stalked, like a city of desiccated thrumming. There were hordes of bugs. I watched a cockroach dance across its face, and its wings opened and flittered momentarily before diving back down below the surface of its cheek. But the smell was like a thousand dead corpses, a million eggy farts mingled with diarrhea and melina and old feet. Decomposition. Old air from the houses where people had died and no one found them for weeks. Fetid cheese born of crotch sweat and festering wounds. I retched and vomited out everything that was in my stomach. I inhaled an even worse stench and vomited harder. The monster's shoulders broadened and grew stronger with my gorge it had retched up. Darius, pour the bleach on him, and Pete's tone was academic. He looked at me, and then the bottle of bleach. And then from within the pile of innards that once had been the medical examiner named Henry Kitchens, a hand raised up and twitched, seemingly waving hello to us, then dropped back into the pile. I shouted, trying to hold back any more of my lunch, and charged into the billowing dead smell, and threw out my hand with the bottle of bleach to douse the Silwa with all that I had. Nothing happened. I squeezed the bottle with both hands. The bottle bulged, but no bleach sprayed. The top was still screwed on. Jesus, Darius, Bedrock groaned. I looked up just as the beast hit me with all its power. My head hit the tiled floor and I saw stars. I started graying out. Over me, this thing dripped excrement into my face and a talon-like hand gripped my throat. Its mouth opened slowly. In that darkness was a bottomless pit of agony. Lost souls swam. Eyes wide and terrified creeped from beneath its teeth, staring at me. I knew where I would lose myself, into that abyss of misery. The screaming became distant as its hands gripped around my throat. I felt the strength leaving from my body, and my eyes began to wander. 
and that's when they happened upon it. An old scalpel rusting embedded in the carcass of the Silwa, probably rife with tetanus and hepatitis and anything else the beast had. Without thought and blacking out, I dug my hand into the monster's side, gripped the scalpel and freed it. It looked down at it, then at me, and it roared. I was caked in a shark, blinding me momentarily. And out of sheer luck, or determination, or panic, I stabbed the side of the bleach container once, twice, like a prison shivvy, and hugged the bottle hard. An immediate pain-soaked howl filled the room, and the pressure was off my neck. I was able to claw to my knees, gasping in high whistling wheezes. Pete took the bottle in a handoff maneuver that showed Bedrock wasn't the only athletic one here tonight, directed the bottle's spray at the Silwa, and let it all go. There was an agonizing bray that filled every corner of that morgue room and reverberated back. I looked up to see the monster fitting itself down the drain. The smoke went without trouble, but the solid matter bent and twisted as it went down through the tiles, fitting like sausage meat down a casing. Pete unscrewed the top now, and as the creature disappeared down the drain, he upended the bottle down the hole, and the floors and pipes of the hospital that ran back to Central Rio Municipal. There was another reverberating, agonized bellow, and then it was gone. And then we could hear banging coming from inside one of the cold storage meat lockers. Pete! Get me out! It was Mike the janitor. He had walked in on the monster supping on kitchens and had just time enough to run across the room and dive into one of the corpse lockers. Did you get it? It fucking dead or whatever? No. Got away. Bedrock was looking down into the hole, lost in thought. Are you all right, Darius? I was covered in ruination. Yeah, that scared me. It was so much more than that, but I wasn't going to admit it. And Bedrock surprised me. That was a good move, Darius. You did good. I was dripping with shit from head to toe, but I felt like I had been swaddled in velvet. They hosed me down in the homeless disinfection room. It's basically a high-powered shower head and brushes on broom handles. It's the kind of cleaning that circus elephants get. And then the guys contacted a few police in the know regarding Hank Kitchens. The cover story for Hank was absolutely ludicrous. A wolf pack snuck into the basement and made their way over to the morgue and attacked poor old Hank. No one really believed it, but Rio is a small rural town and we don't like publicity. No one wants to believe that there's a massacring killer on the loose in this sleepy haven. Kitchens had no family, which made it easier, and within weeks, the story bubbled out of existence 
lost down the drain like a certain excrement monster. And besides, towns like these are steeped in the unusual, and a story that bizarre somehow seems perfect to be woven into the town's tapestry. I'm sober despite the madness of that weekend. I've been bare-knuckling it, and at times thought I'd go over, but the groups helped with that. I couldn't have gotten here, wouldn't be here without them. I've come across some other strange dealings since then, but that's a tale for another time. Please come back when I'm well-rested and willing to write them down. For now, what I've learned is this. Life is dark and strange and a lonely place at times, and it's better with a buddy. Find someone before it's too late or you're too far along the path of hermitage. And remember, in the desolate cold of 3 a.m., when the wind has died and the world begins to whisper and the dead begin to speak, it's better to have someone to wrap your arms over and fall quietly back to sleep. It's best not to listen. Not unless you're willing to hear what they have to say. Not unless you're willing to stand up and be counted. So for now, sleep and love. But maybe if you're one of us, you will listen and you'll stand tall and be true. Damn it, I think I stepped in something. Happy Halloween!